not going to introduce Wayne every time. Uh, he doesn't need that lathering up at all, but I will tonight and maybe at the end of the week. Um, he's from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, he's been preaching a long, long, long time. <laughs> he knows how to preach and he knows how to reach the heart as well as anybody I know. He and uh, someone you may have uh, become familiar with is Keith Parker is a, a cut from the same kind of cloth and I, I love what these guys do and I, I have to be honest with you, uh, as, as I've said before, you know I've been on gospel meetings the last couple weeks, but I, I, never, I never expect them to work. There's a preacher who preaches them now. I don't expect them to work. And that is a, a shame on me for this. I just haven't seen them uh, like they used to. And yet this past week, uh, two weeks ago, there were two baptisms. This last week, there was one. And, and both times when people responded, I, I kind of had a baffled look on my face. And people were looking at me like, and I just like, well, I didn't know people were supposed to do that anymore, right? Because it just, but here's the thing about this. And, and the reason why sometimes if you want to do a meeting like this, instead of like a topical, like we're going to do something on family stuff or marriage stuff, to do a gospel meeting, you really do almost have to reach back to some of these older preachers who know how to do this, who've seen those days and know how to compel people. But here's what I know that should compel us, and I want an amen for every statement you agree with. This has to be a statement that applies to every human being you will meet, that you have met, that you will see this week, that you know. This has to be true, and if it's true, I want you to say amen. Every one of you, you ready? Every person has been made by God. Amen. Every person that you meet is loved dearly by God. Amen. Every person that you meet or have met has gotten themselves in trouble because their sin has separated them from God. Amen. Every person you meet has an appointment with God for judgment. That's true. And every person you meet, the only way that they will avoid an eternity apart from God is to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. Do you really believe that? Amen. You kind of weakened on that last one. Everyone you meet to avoid a separation from God for eternity must obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We believe that. That's why we're doing this revival. That's why we've asked Wayne to come. And that's why you're going to expect great things, and you should. And even if you've already obeyed it, there's nothing in the world like hearing good gospel preaching again of what you've already done. But even if you've already done it, you still depend on it every day of your life. Let's give our attention to Wayne Kilpatrick. Well, thank you again for being here tonight, and we're honored that you're here. If you're a guest of this church, we want you to know especially how glad we are you've come, and we hope you'll be able to be back every night during this revival. Hold up your Bibles. Do you still bring your Bibles with you when you come to church? Hold them up. Songbooks don't count. All right. Bring your Bible every time you come to worship. I want you to take your Bibles now and turn back to the book of Hosea. It was read to you just a little while ago. Hosea chapter 11. And we're going to spend a little bit of time there in just a moment. I'm going to talk to you tonight about the God I didn't know. I'm going to tell you about the God I grew up with. Now, I told you this morning something about my family. My dad was an elder in the church when I was a teenager. His father, a gospel preacher. 
And I, all my life, have been in the church. But the God that I grew up with was an austere God. He was just. Uh, he was watching every move you made. He would get you if you didn't behave yourself. And so I came to church, but I feared God. Not in the kind of sense that the Bible talks about fear God and keep his commandments. Not with respect and adoration, but I was just downright scared of God. I thought if I messed up, he'd get me. In fact, I thought that so much that when I was 16 years old, I worked at a grocery store, and uh, it was lunchtime, and I left that grocery store and drove down the street just a little piece to a smaller grocery where I went in. I bought my lunch, and after I'd finished eating, I decided I'd have a little dessert, and so I went back up and I bought a cake, a little piece of cake. It cost uh, 15 cents. I gave the man a quarter. He gave me back 35 cents. You've heard of having your cake needed to? I had my cake, I even had an extra dime back, you know, so I thought, boy, this is my day. Uh, I reasoned like this. I thought, you know, the man ought to know the difference in a 50-cent piece and a quarter. And not only that, but they probably charged too much for it anyway. And besides all that, losing a quarter is not going to break them. So, you know, I go get, get my car and I start to drive off and I back straight into a telephone pole. It jarred me. I just turned the key off. I didn't even pull off the, the pole. I just turned the key off. I went back in the store, and I said, Mister, I gave you a quarter a while ago, and you thought I gave you 50 cents, and so here's your quarter back. I'm on my way back to the car, and I'm thinking, God, if that had been a dollar, you'd have killed me. <laughs> As I was growing up, sometimes I'd start to leave home that, that night, and my mom would say, now be good and have a good time, and I'd say, make up your mind. You can't do both, you know, so which one do you want me to do? And she would say this, there's an eye watching you. I grew up in a home with the all-seeing eye. Did any of you remember that eye? No matter where you went, that eye could look right at you. I grew up in that home. That represented the eye of God. And my mother would remind me, God sees everything you do. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Wayne, God sees everything. So I grew up with that concept of God. For a long time in my early preaching, when I would do revivals, I preached old hellfire and damnation kind of sermons. I thought I had to really, really use the Bible as a whip to make people do right. I want to tell you what changed for me. I was working with a Homewood church in Birmingham, Alabama. I don't know how long I'd been there, but we invited Willard Tate to come and speak at our family vacation Bible school, speak to our adults. And one night he told a story that I'm about to share with you that changed my whole concept of God. He told a story about Isaac Watts. By the way, if you would open your hymn books, you'd find that he's written some of the hymns we sing today. But Isaac Watts, when he was a young boy, used to visit with an older lady in the uh, city community where he lived. She had a picture of that all-seeing eye. And so when he would go to her home to visit, he would stand in front of the eye and he would move one direction and another, but the eye was always watching him. And so one day as he was standing looking at that eye, this lady said to him, she said, Isaac, you like that picture, don't you? He said, yes, ma'am, I do. She just reached up and took it off the wall and she said, I'm going to give you that picture. I want you to take it home and I want you to put it in your bedroom. But she said, Isaac, I want to explain these words down here at the bottom that says the eyes of the Lord are in every place. She said, Isaac, there are people who will tell you that the eyes of the Lord are in every place because he's watching you all the time to see if you mess up so he can punish you. But she said, Isaac, 
That's not why the eyes of the Lord are in every place. The eyes of the Lord are in every place because he loves you so much he can't take his eyes off of you. When I heard that, I began to cry. I didn't know that God. The only God that I'd been raised with was a God that was severe and austere and just, but I was afraid of him. It changed my preaching, changed my life. And so tonight I want to talk about the God that I have learned about. The God that I now know is a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of love. There's a book in the Bible, Psalm 136. It has 26 verses in it. Every single one in the King James Version, every verse ends, His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. If you read the NIV, it says His love endures forever. The, the word mercy appears in your Bible 276 times. 276 times. Our God is a God of mercy. That's the God I'm going to preach to you this week. I'm going to tell you about a God that loves you so much he can't take his eyes off of you. How very special you are in his sight. Just a little while ago when I came in the building, one of the brethren told me, he said he grew up in a church where, the, where his preacher told him that the Bible was not a love letter. Told him it was not a love letter and said, we don't have revivals. That's why he grew up, similar to my upbringing as well. And so the God of mercy, and I want to begin by telling you a story tonight about a young man who uh, all his growing up life, he became a Christian quite early. And as he grew up, people would say, what you going to be when you grow up? And he said, I'm going to be a preacher. I want to be a preacher. And so when he graduated from high school, he immediately enrolled in one of our Christian colleges. For four straight years... He studied the Bible. He took all the courses in Bible that he could take, Greek courses. Not only that, he joined the Bible club and the debate club. Everything he could do was all about being a preacher. That was his dream, his desire, his love. And so when he finally graduated, he had not had time for dating. He had no time for social life. Spent all of his time in the summertime working as a ministerial intern. And so that happened for four straight years. <clears throat> After he graduated... He went off to a large city, and he began working in the inner city, down in the slums of the inner city. He started to work among the kids. And as he was working there, his reputation began to spread. People began to hear about him, and, and more and more kids came to be a part of his Bible studies and to learn about Jesus. One day, a young lady, about 17 years old, came for the very first time. She was absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. He had never seen anyone in his life that he thought was more beautiful. But I must tell you about her background. Her dad was an, a drunk and a drug addict. His, her, her mother was a prostitute. She lived in a bad section of town, and there were already questions about that young woman's morals. But this old boy thought she was beautiful, and after a while she kept coming to his group, so he uh, asked her for a date. And she went with him. She was impressed with this young preacher. So she went with him, and they dated for a while. And after they'd been dating for a while, he popped the question. He asked her to marry him, though she was only now about 18 years old. She thought he was joking. She turned him down. They kept dating a little while longer, and again he popped the question. This time she knew he was serious, but she said, this won't work. We're too different. Our backgrounds are too different. It won't work. She turned him down again. And then after some more dates and some more weeks and months passed, he asked her a third time, and by this time, she said to herself, you know, he has beautiful eyes. 
He's gentle and kind. And she said yes. And so they got married and they moved into a little apartment down in that section of town where they worked. And uh, for the first year, their home was full of love and mercy, grace to each other. In fact, he gave her love and security and opportunities, the likes of which she had never had in her life. But after a, a couple of years, she had a baby and a cloud of gloom and doom began to set over that house. There were some questions about her faithfulness. After a while, a second baby, and again, questions about her loyalty. And then the time came when she had the third child, and by this time, there's absolutely no doubt she's an unfaithful wife. He would go out to do his work among the kids at night, and when he'd go out, she'd call a babysitter, and she'd leave to go out and drink and party. That went on for a while. Sometimes she would come in at one or two o'clock in the morning. When the preacher would come back from his work, he would find the babysitter there and he'd say, where's my wife? And she said, I don't know, sir. She just asked me to come sit with the kids till you got home. She'd come in at one or two o'clock in the morning and sometimes reeking of the smell of alcohol and tobacco. He would beg her to be faithful. He'd beg her to stay at home and stay with those kids. But the time came when he'd get a call from the police saying, we've arrested your wife for prostitution. Will you come down and bail her out? And when he would go down to get her, he would beg her on the way home. Can't you be, be a loyal wife? Can't you love our kids? Can't you be faithful? Time came when she quit coming home altogether. Now, when I tell you that story, I want to ask you this. What is your emotional reaction to those kids? How do you feel about the kids? And if you're like me, you feel pity. You feel sorry for them. You say those kids deserve better. There's no such thing as an illegitimate child. Illegitimate parents, but no illegitimate child. Every child has a right to live. And so you feel pity for them. How do you feel about the husband? Well, maybe you say, I feel sorry for him. He was naive. He was kind of foolish, maybe a little judgmental, and you think, well, he ought to know better. But how do you feel about the wife? And you may say, well, she gets whatever she deserves. She had her chance, she blew it. So whatever happens to her from here on out is just exactly what she deserves. Now, friends, as I tell you that story tonight, I tell you that there's a story in the Bible very similar to that, and it's found here in the book of Hosea. It was written in the 8th century B.C. Hosea represents God in the story, and Gomer, his wife, represents Israel. Now, if you know anything about the background of Israel at this time, they are extremely sinful. They have rebelled against God. They've gone after other gods. And so we begin reading in verse 1 where it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son, but before I called Israel, the further they went from me. Can you imagine this? A parent calling the child, wanting what's best for the child, trying to save the child's life, and the child keeps going farther and farther away toward danger. And so he said, I called him, and he kept going farther and farther. He said, they sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incensed images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hand. And they did not realize it was I who healed them. You taught your child to walk. You remember that? You'd hold them up, help them walk. Then maybe you'd turn them loose, but if they started to fall, you reached out and grabbed them. The time came when they would hold on to your finger, and you'd walk until after a while they could walk. God said, I taught Israel how to walk. I taught him how to walk. He said, 
They didn't realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them? Because they refuse to repent, swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Now listen to this. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. God's fed up with Israel. He's had it with them. He has loved them and blessed them and given them a, a, a great land. And they keep turning from him and serving the Baals, the false gods in the lands where they've lived. And now then God says, I've had it with them. And even if they call to me, I'm not going to hear them. I've had it with them. But then you read the next verse. And God's heart changes. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboam? My heart is changed within me and all my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God, not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. Let me ask you a question. If you had a wife or a husband <clears throat> who was unfaithful to you one time, and they came back after their unfaithfulness and they truly repented. They begged you to forgive them. Could you do that? Could you do it? I hope so. What about if they did it two times? And then what if they did it three times? Is there anybody in here that would take a mate back after three times of unfaithfulness? When they promised time and again to stop being unfaithful, would you take them back? And yet God does. Three times the woman has children that Hosea is not the parent of, not the father of, and yet he wants to take her back. You know what? The thing about it, I told you a while ago about the young man, and I asked you how you, how you felt about those. You feel that the girl deserves anything you get, but I didn't ask you this. How do you think the husband feels about her? How do you think he feels? And I would tell you he'd take her back in an instant. He would do everything within his power to make a home for his three kids. And that's the way God is. God wants us back. We have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Jehovah laid upon him the iniquity of us all. For we've all sinned. There's none righteous, no, not one. And yet God still loves us. And God still pleads with us. And God doesn't turn his face from us. For he's the Holy One of Israel. And God just keeps on forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And he's waiting for you tonight. If you're not a Christian, he's waiting for you to answer his call, come to him. Have you ever wondered how in the world Hosea maybe met her? How did he meet Gomer? How, how would a man of such sterling qualities and character fall in love with a woman like Gomer? And I pictured in my mind that maybe Hosea was working down in the inner city, a place where prostitutes hung out. And maybe he was wearing one of those sandwich signs, you know, that people sometimes wear. And on the front of the sign, it says, judgment is near. And on the back side, it says, you better watch out. Judgment is near. You better watch out. But after a while, he falls in love with uh, Gomer. They get married. She's unfaithful to him. And then the time comes when Gomer, with what's left of her body that is now in probably very sad shape, decides to sell herself at auction. And word comes to Hosea, Gomer is going on auction. Who is it that goes down and begins to bid? 
as the bid begins for her, and maybe you need to look at her now. She's no longer the beautiful woman she was when Hosea met her. Maybe now there's some teeth missing in the front. Maybe there's scars on her body that you'd have to see to believe. She's been treated badly. But as the auction begins, Hosea starts to bid. And maybe word passes through the audience pretty soon. It's her husband. He's bidding on her. And so the bidding stops. Fifteen pieces of silver and almost a half of barley. And so they begin to write out the papers. I can see Hosea in my mind as he steps upon the stage where she is. He says to her quietly, Gomer, I still love you. You've broken my heart. You've hurt our kids. But my love for you has not died. I want to take you home and I want to treat you right. And and I want to love you. and, And I want you to try your best to love me back. Gomer, can you try to love us back? It's a sad story, but it's a story that represents God and God's love for us. And you know what? After he gets her back, I see him now again downtown, walking in the inner city. He's got on his sandwich sign. You know what it says now? On the front of it, it says, God loves you. And on the back, and he always will. God loves you, and he always will. Now, with that in mind, I want to do three things tonight. I want to talk to you about what love is. I mean, mercy is. Define it. Then I want to see mercy demonstrated in Scripture. And then last of all, how God demands we be merciful. So let me define mercy for you. Mercy is defined as loving kindness, compassion, pity, forbearance, tolerance. That's what it is. I want to demonstrate it this way. So you can learn the difference. Now, if I were to ask you to define justice and grace and mercy, I think probably we we know what justice is, but we'd get a little hung up on what's the difference in grace and mercy. Seem to be used interchangeable, almost. And yet there is a difference. And I want to illustrate it this way. Many years ago, I was holding revival in a little town, a little village outside of Huntsville, Alabama. In fact, it was the place where I did my first preaching. And... uh, I was living in Milan, my wife, my two kids, and I had driven down to Huntsville, which was my hometown. I'd grown up there. And uh, so I held a meeting, and the meeting closed on a Wednesday night. I'd taken the kids out of school, so I was taking them back home. We left after church that night to drive all the way back to Milan. We'd had a good meeting, and uh, it had been a wonderful time to be together with old friends. And so the kids are lying in the back seat asleep as we make our way up Montesano Mountain, Highway 72, going up Montesano Mountain. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling lighthearted. It's been a good meeting. And I'm on my way home, and Carolyn is sitting over by her side, and she's quiet. And I'm just going on up the road. And then all of a sudden, blue lights begin to flash. And I look in the mirror, and I see that, and I say, oh, Carolyn, I'm being stopped by the highway patrol. She said, what were you doing? I looked down at my speedometer when I saw the blue lights. I was doing 72 miles an hour in a 55-mile zone. I didn't realize I was speeding. I was just feeling lighthearted and heavy-footed. And so here we go down the road. The blue light pulls me over. And the guy walks up to my car, stuck his head in and said, May I see your license, please? I get my license out, and I look up into the face of Carter Adams. Carter Adams was one of my best friends in the eighth grade. I have not seen Carter since eighth grade. But there he was had his name on his badge, Carter Adams. 
And so I handed my uh, driver's license. I said, hey, Carter, Wayne Kilpatrick, you remember me? He said, get out of the car, please. So I get out of the car. He sa- I said, Carter, don't you remember me? And so he said, do you know how fast you were going? I said, yes, I was doing 72. He said, that's what I clocked you at. And I told him, I just finished this revival. I was feeling good, wasn't thinking about speed. But I said, Carter, don't you remember me? I'm trying my best to jog his memory. And finally, he said, of course, I remember you, Wayne. He said, let me tell you something. Don't ever speed in my area anymore. Now, there's a car up in front. I want you to go up there, and he's just going to give you a warning ticket. Well, that was nice. Now, what is justice? Justice is you broke the law. You got to pay for it. That's justice. Be just what I deserved. I deserved a ticket. But you know what he did? He gave me grace. He gave me what I needed but didn't deserve. But I want to tell you now the difference in grace and mercy. It seems to me that if Carter had said, Wayne, you broke the law. I'm going to write you a ticket. You deserve the ticket. You know that. I'm going to write you a ticket, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay it for you. That would have been mercy. When our, fa- when, when our father sent his son Jesus into this world, and Jesus went to that old rugged cross. He did it for us. He paid a price for us. That's mercy. So what is mercy then? It's compassion. It's love. It's sacrificing. It's compassion and pity. Now then, let me demonstrate it this way. Jesus Christ was God incarnate. And I want to tell you some stories in the life of Jesus that will demonstrate the mercy. You remember the story in John 8 when a woman's taken in the very act of adultery? Caught her red-handed. Moses in the law said one that commits adultery uh, is to be stoned. And so these Pharisees, these religious hypocrites bring her, throw her down at the feet of Jesus and say, this is what the law demands, what are you going to do? They think they've got him. If he says, stoner, he's broken the law of Rome. Rome has taken away from the Jews the right of capital punishment. They could try you. They could find you guilty. They could sentence you, but they can't carry out the sentence. Rome has taken that away from them. And so if he says, stoner, he's broken Roman law. If he says, don't stoner, he's broken Jewish law. So they've got him on the horns of a dilemma. They got him either way he goes. And so what does he do? Bends over and writes in the sand. Wouldn't you love to know what he wrote? Wouldn't that be interesting? What did he write when he bent over? I remember hearing a story one time about a fellow in college who kind of went to sleep during the Bible class. The teacher at the college was teaching the Bible class, and this preacher student went to sleep. And so the, the uh, teacher said, called him by his name, said, Alan, wake up. And Alan came awake and he said, what did Jesus write in the sand when the woman in John 8 was taking the act of adultery? Alan said, I I, I, I used to know, but I forgot. And the the teacher said, what a shame. The only man in the world that knows what Jesus wrote and he's forgotten. Well, the thing about it is nobody knows what he wrote. He might have written this. He might have written, let him without sin cast the first stone at her. He might have written down the names of those who were looking over his shoulder and right out by the side of it wrote the sin for which they were guilty. Whatever it was, in a moment when he raised up, as they kept persisting, what are you going to do? He said, let him without sin among you cast the first stone. He bent down and wrote wrote, uh, some more. 
And the next time when he lifted up, the Bible said they had left from the oldest to the youngest. And he said, woman, where are thine accusers? And she said, there is no man, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. That's mercy. That is mercy demonstrated in the life of Jesus. You remember the story in Luke 19 when Jesus came to the little oasis of Jericho? And as he came into the city, I can imagine the whole town's turned out. I can imagine if they had clubs in that days like the Kiwanians, the Rotarians, or the JCs. They were all clamoring, come and eat with us today. Come speak at our club. Jesus makes his way down the street until he comes to the base of a sycamore tree. And up that tree is the biggest little center in town. He's a publican. He's a tax collector. He's a turncoat to his own people. And Jesus stops at the base of that tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have lunch with you today. And I can almost hear them as they begin to say, what? Did you hear that? Doesn't he know the kind of person that is? But I'm going to tell you this. There was nobody in all of Jericho that needed Jesus worse than Zacchaeus. He goes home with Zacchaeus. And when he gets ready to leave in a little while, Zacchaeus says, Lord, if I've taken anything unfairly, I'm going to pay it back four times. And I'm going to give half of everything I have to the poor. And Jesus said to him, this day is salvation coming to thine house. That's mercy. Now, folks, you see mercy in the Old Testament. God said to Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, I want you to rise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it. And you know the story of how Jonah went the other direction. And then after he's had a little ride in the belly of a whale, fish, then chapter 2 starts out. Now, the word of the Lord, or chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. And Jonah went this time. And you'll recall that when he got there, he had a sermon. It was, yea, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And when he preached that sermon, from the poorest man in town to the king on the throne, they put on sackcloth and ashes. They repented and they confessed their sins. And they asked God to forgive them. And you know what happened, don't you? They averted destruction 150 years. Jonah didn't like it. Here was a guy that went to hold a revival and didn't like the results. When the whole town responds. And when he gets through, he says, I knew all along you were a God of mercy and a God of compassion. I knew all along you wouldn't destroy these people. Oh, what a mighty God we serve. A God of mercy. You remember in the Old Testament too when uh, the angels appeared to Abraham and said, you need to go get your nephew Lot and his family out of Sodom. We're going to rain down fire and brimstone, destroy those cities, the Lord told him. And you remember Abraham went to bat for him and he said, Lord, if I could find 50 righteous souls there, would you spare them? And the Lord in his mercy said, yes. And then Abraham said, if I could find 40, if I could find 30, if I could find 20. And he finally got it down to, Lord, if I could find 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you spare them? And God said, yes. But there were not 10 people there that were righteous. But God would have shown mercy. You know what I think about the way America has survived over the years? I think it's because of the righteous people in this country. I think God is our greatest ally. 
And I think as long as God's people love him and serve him, I think God will spare us. But folks, we need to be aware that we're slipping as a country far away from God. We've taken him out of our schools. We've taken him out of uh, so many of the uh, governmental places. And God needs to be back. And so I'm saying to you then that God is a God of mercy. And maybe that's why he spared us. And we need to be grateful. And so that's mercy demonstrated. Now then, one more thing. I want to talk about mercy demanded. God wants you and me to be merciful. Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In Matthew 23 and verse 23, Jesus said, You scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites. He said, You tithe mint and anise and cumin, yet you've left undone the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, truth. These ought you to have done, not left the other undone. Justice and mercy. And then we read in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 13. He said, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know what God is saying to you and me, folks? He's saying we need to be merciful to each other. We need to show mercy to one another. And you know, sometimes if you commit sin, the hardest place in the world to find mercy is among brethren. Sometimes we're quick to point a finger, to condemn, and to want to run them out. Divorced people tell me, and I've talked to a bunch of them over the years, divorced people tell me that when they needed the church the most, the church was not there for them. They called themselves the walking wounded. We needed the church to encourage us. We had sometimes a, a single mom with children now, and yet she's no longer married, so the friends that she had before, married couples, don't include her anymore. And she finds herself all alone. I'm saying to you folks, when you hear something about somebody, instead of being so quick to condemn and point a finger and find fault, why don't you go and extend love and mercy? If you hear something about a, a member that's done something wrong, instead of uh, writing him a letter or going to see him and saying, uh, you have embarrassed the church, you've hurt, hurt us in the, the community, why don't you say, look, we love you. What can we do to help you get back on the right path? What can we do? to show you our love. Wouldn't that be better? Instead of being so quick to condemn, wouldn't it be better to show love? And so we need to show mercy to each other. I would also suggest to you we need to show mercy to the poor. In the book of Proverbs chapter 14, verse 21, the Bible says, Blessed is he that shows mercy to the needy. Blessed is the man who shows mercy to the poor. You know what I think? If I were Jesus and I wanted to check up on a church, I think maybe I would come on a, on a Wednesday night. I would walk into the foyer of that church dressed in the rags of poverty. And I would say, may I see one of your elders or your preacher? Maybe I would even say this, may I see your pastor? And you know, that's a red letter word for us because we don't call our preachers pastors. And so I'd probably say, let me see your pastor just to see how you react. Because you know what we'd say immediately? He's not one of us. He's not one of us. And we'd feel less likely maybe to help him because he's not one of us. But maybe we would kind of uh, all skirt around him, leave him there. And after a while, maybe one of the deacons in charge of benevolence would show up. But I want to know, would you not be more Christ-like if you approach this person and say, you know what, it looks like you're down on your, your luck. 
And we, don't, we want you to know you've come to the right place if you're seeking help. We love poor people. We love people in trouble. And we want to help you out. We want to help you not just materially, physically. We want to help you spiritually as well. And so we'll do our best to help you to know Jesus and help him. Wouldn't that be better? Used to on uh, Thursday mornings, I would speak at a bank downtown. They had a devotional every Thursday morning. And for many years, I don't know how many years, I went down every Thursday morning to speak at their devotional. And uh, one Thursday morning, driving, you know, in Birmingham is a little bit worse than driving in Jonesboro, but uh, the traffic wasn't as bad that morning for some reason, so I got there a little early. There was a little restaurant right next door to the bank, and so I hadn't had breakfast, and I decided to go in and have breakfast. And so while I'm eating, I look over to a booth to my left, and there sits, there sits two homeless men. And they had their little bags with them all, I guess the possessions they had in the world. And they were eating together, and after a while, one of them got up to leave. And, uh, well, they weren't eating. They were sitting there at the time. One of them got up to leave, and he said, I'll see you later, Jim. And so I looked over and caught Jim's eyes. And I said, uh, I asked him, I said, have you had breakfast? And he said, yes, I have. So uh, when I finished eating, I went back over to where he was, and I gave him some money, and I said, well, this will buy lunch and dinner for you tonight. Quick as a hand, his, his, quick as a flash, his hand came out. He said, God bless you, sir. And I got to tell you something, folks. I was indeed the one blessed. For the next few Thursdays, when I would go down to speak at that bank, I'd always go and check in that restaurant, see if Jim were there. I never saw him again. But it is a blessing to help the poor. You are blessed when you do it. The Bible said when you give to the poor, you give to God, you give to Jesus, and he'll see that you're paid. Blessed are those who show mercy to the poor. It used to be when I would be driving up and down the roads of our highways, if I passed a, a hitchhiker, I'd stop and pick him up. I felt sorry for him. I've even gone past him and circled back around to pick him up. I don't do that anymore because it's dangerous. And you know what the Bible says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some who entertained angels unaware. But I got to thinking if he's an angel, he can fly. So I don't pick him up anymore. But I rarely ever pass one that's asking for help that I don't stop and help him. I'm just saying, it's not because I'm so good. I'm just saying, folks, it makes you feel good when you do show mercy to the poor. One more thing. We need to show mercy to the lost. Lost people need our mercy. I'm so grateful a while ago that Spencer talked about lost people and how we need to get the gospel to them. We need to really show mercy to the poor and to the lost. I want to close with a story that will help you to see what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about loving the lost, I'm talking about dirty, rotten sinners. I'm talking about folks that you and I would hardly... I wipe our feet on. I'm talking about the low life of the earth. One of my favorite authors is Tony Campolo. He's written a lot of books. I will tell you that Tony served for many years as the uh, philosophy uh, teacher, a sociology teacher in uh, Eastern University just outside of Philadelphia. He also was a speaker that spoke all over the world. <clears throat> he was in Hawaii on a speaking tour. He said the time distance from Philadelphia to Hawaii was six hours. So at two o'clock in the morning in Hawaii, it was eight o'clock in the morning in Philadelphia. So he said, I kept waking up at two o'clock hungry for breakfast. 
So he said, one morning I was hungry and I decided to just get up. So he said, I dressed and I started walking down the street in front of the hotel. I couldn't find any place to eat. So he said, I got over on some side streets. And finally he said, I came to a little place that you could really describe as a greasy spoon. But he said, I was so hungry that I went on in and he said, uh, I ordered, as I looked around, he said, first of all, the fellow working behind the counter was a huge guy. He was very hairy and he had on an old dirty apron. So he said, I ordered a donut and a cup of coffee. He said, when I ordered the donut, the old boy just reached over with his bare hand, took the donut out and slapped it down on the napkin in front of me. He said, I don't know what they do in the kitchen, but at least out front he could have used tongs. But he said, I was so hungry that I went ahead and I was nibbling on my donuts, drinking my coffee, when all of a sudden, he said about a dozen prostitutes came into that little cafe. He said they just crowded all around up on the, uh, at the counter there where I was sitting. And he said, I could tell that they were women of the night because of the way they were dressed and by their coarse conversation. He said the one that was sitting just next to me said, to her friend, tomorrow's my birthday. I'll be 39 years old. And her friend said to her, well, what do you want me to do about it? Throw you a birthday party? Cook you a cake? And she said to her friend, no, I'm not asking you to throw me a party or cook me a cake. Besides, if you did, it would be the first one I ever had. Tony said after a while they left. He said, I asked the guy behind the counter whose name happened to be Harry. <laughs> he said, I said, Harry, do those women come in here every night? He said, yes, every night, like clockwork, about 2.30 in the morning. He said, you think they'll be back in the morning? He said, I'm sure they will. He said, the woman who was sitting next to me, what was her name? He said, her name is Agnes. He said, well, I heard Agnes say tomorrow's her birthday. I also heard her say she'd never had a birthday party. She'd never had a birthday cake. You know what I want to do, Harry? I want to throw Agnes a birthday party tomorrow right here in your little restaurant. I want to go out and bake, get her a cake, and I want us to have a party for her. What do you think about that? And so he said, just a minute. Called his wife, who was the cook. She came out. He said, this man wants to throw Agnes a birthday party. She's going to be 39 tomorrow. She's never had a birthday party and never had a cake. So he wants to throw a party right here in our little restaurant. Tony spoke up. He said, I'll do all the decorating. I'll get the cake. And so his wife said, you know what? Agnes is a better person than she gets credit for. She's had a hard life. And I think it would be wonderful for us to throw a party. But Harry said, I'll tell you this. You're not going to bake the cake. I'll do that. You can do the decorating, but I'll bake the cake. So the next morning, he said, uh, Tony said, word must have gotten out on the street because every prostitute in Honolulu crowded into that little old restaurant. He said it was like wall-to-wall prostitutes. He said, I had the place decorated. I had a sign over the uh, counter that said, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And when Agnes and her friends came in at about 2.30, Agnes read the sign and her knees buckled. And when they started singing Happy Birthday, she just lost it, started to cry. When they brought out the cake and presented it to her, she held it in her hands. And in a moment she said, can I take it home and keep it for a while? I've never had a birthday cake before. 
Harry said, take it home, Agnes, it'll be okay. She turned to walk out. She said to Tony, I just live right around the corner. I'll be right back. Tony said when she walked out, there was a hush that fell over that crowd. He said, I didn't know what else to do, so I said, let's all pray. So he led them in a prayer. A room full of prostitutes. He led them in a prayer. He prayed for all of them. He prayed for Agnes with a good heart. He prayed she'd find a better profession and that she could find Jesus. And when he finished, Harry was irate. Harry said to him, I didn't know you was a preacher. He said, you, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. What kind of a preacher do you, you, are you anyway and what kind of a church do you preach for? Tony said, sometimes God just gives you the answer. Tony said, let me tell you the kind of church I preach for. I preach for a church that throws a birthday party for a prostitute at 2.30 in the morning. Harry said, no, you don't. There ain't no church like that. If there were, I'd join it. Are sinners welcomed here? Are sinners sought here? Do we show mercy to sinners? We're all sinners, folks. Just a matter of degrees. There's none righteous. No, not one. For we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has mercy on us. We need to have mercy on sinners around us. And so as I close tonight, I ask you this. Do you love this God of mercy? Are you grateful for what he has done, is doing, and will do for you? If you're in this room tonight and you're lost, I just want to tell you, he loves you so much. He can't take his eyes off of you. He sent his only begotten son to die so you could have everlasting life. And he wants you to come and be a part of his family. He offers you forgiveness of sins. He tells you he'll write your name in his book. And the Bible says that one day, this God that we know is a God of mercy will have to be a God of justice. And whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. So won't you come tonight? Become a part of God's family if you're not a Christian. Love him back. Give him your life. Serve him. And be grateful for the God of mercy who extends to you the invitation to come. If you need to come tonight, be restored, then you come while we stand to sing.
Remain standing just a moment. Tomorrow night is going to be really, really an old-fashioned sermon. I call it the supreme question. <laughs>